0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. God, I I just ask that you would be here, that you would help me to to expound your word well. Pray that you would bring clarity, that uh, people would understand what your word says. But, Father, more than that, I pray that you would give us a vision for what it means to obey what you've said. God, would you help us to know what it means to live out the gospel in the places where you put us. And uh, so we ask that you would have your way in this time, that you would speak through me, that you'd speak to me in Jesus name. Amen. 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 All right. So today we're going to be speaking about the incarnational ministry of the church. That's uh sounds like it came straight out of seminary, doesn't it? <laughs> the incarnational ministry of the church. So when I say the incarnation, what what am I referring to? Jesus entered into the world and became human. So when you when you go to the Mexican restaurant and you get chile con carne, it's chili with what meat. meat? So so, incarnate means in fleshed. So when we talk about the incarnation, we mean that God stepped into the human sphere and He took on human flesh. And so the incarnation is that ministry of Jesus. You'll, you'll hear people refer to the days of His flesh, the days when He walked the earth uh, as a man. Missiologists have taken this idea of the incarnation of Christ, and as they've read their Bibles, rightly, they've noticed that the kind of ministry that the church is called to is this same kind of ministry that Jesus did. And obviously, we're not God. We're not becoming human. But there's a sense in which if we want to reach people, there is a a principle that we have to meet them where they are. God didn't stay in heaven and just tell us about our problem from afar. He didn't tell us simply how we could be good people to get to Him, how we can cross that divide. He didn't expect us to cross that uncrossable expanse that separated us from Him because of sin. He sent His Son on a mission trip. He came across that chasm, and He entered into the human sphere to live a perfect human life, to demonstrate for us what it looks like for a man to perfectly obey the will of God. He demonstrated that for us. He showed it. He preached and he cast vision. He told people what the kingdom of God was like. In every place that he went, when he found human brokenness and he found human suffering, he told people, this is not what the kingdom of God is like. And then he cast a vision and he healed people and he cast out demons and he brought freedom and he brought salvation. And so if we are going to continue on in the ministry of Jesus. And that's really what I'm arguing today is that is that Jesus has called us to continue His ministry. The ministry of the church is not a new ministry. It's an extension of what Jesus was already doing. And we're called to do it incarnationally. We're not called to do it from afar. We're not called to just tell people that they ought to come and they ought to try harder to get close to God. But we have to cross the gap. We have to cross the expanse and go to where they are and meet them where they are. So, we're going to read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. I've got it on the screen if you need it. So, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So the big idea here, the risen Lord Jesus has commissioned his followers to continue his ministry and despite fear of rejection and persecution the church is called to fulfill this commission so we're called to follow Jesus in his ministry of proclamation we're called to follow Jesus in his ministry of service and we're called to follow Jesus in his ministry of sacrificial suffering for the sake of others but there's a big challenge and it's its fear i mean if i just to put one one name on it fear paralyzes and prevents the church. In verse, in verse 19, you'll see the, the disciples had this problem. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. So this is Easter Sunday. Jesus had been uh, raised from the dead. They, they had discovered the empty tomb, uh, but he had not yet appeared to them. It says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, for fear of the Jews. So... Now, it's pretty easy for us to sympathize with these guys. If you can, if you can put yourselves in them shoes, in their shoes, imagine that you were Peter or James or John and this, this wandering rabbi comes along that you've, you've been hearing rumors that John the baptizer says that he's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so you decide that you're going to turn in your resignation to the Capernaum Fishing Union or whoever it is you give your resignation to when you're a fisherman and, and, and you quit your job and you start, you leave your home and your family and you start following this wandering rabbi and he's doing all these miracles, healing people, casting out demons and you, you, you're getting more and more encouraged. You're becoming more and more convinced that this Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. That he's the one who's going to cast off Roman oppression. He's the one who's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. But in three years, he's dead, in a tomb. And not only is he dead, but he's been crucified as a criminal. He's been convicted of being an enemy of the Roman Empire and and killed. And so so he, he looks like a criminal. So you're you're you're, you're Questioning your life choices at this time. You talk about a midlife crisis. You're questioning your your career path. We, I left everything to follow this guy, and now he's dead. And what's worse, some ladies the ladies from the church went to the tomb to prepare him for a proper proper burial, and somebody had stolen his body. His body's not there. And then, poor Mary. She's so overwhelmed, she bumped into the gardener in the garden, and now she's going around saying the gardener was Jesus. Poor crazy Mary. She's not crazy, is she? They're in this predicament where they, they, they recognize that if I, if I go out on the streets, these same people who killed Jesus are going to spot me, and they're going to arrest me, and probably the same thing happened to Jesus is going to happen to me. Apparently it's ten of Jesus' disciples huddled together in a room and it says the door is shut. If you've got the ESV, I think it says the door is locked. That word could be translated either way. So they're, they're huddled in a room together. The door's locked because they're scared. And I think the church in our day finds itself in a very similar situation where we have this tendency to hide behind. Our doors aren't locked. Our doors are open. Welcome everybody, but we're going to stay here. We're, we're very, very bold to preach the gospel with people who agree with us. And we fear, even, we fear this call to incarnational ministry, this call to go out to our workplaces, to go out into our communities and be publicly identified as Christians is very, a very fearful thing to us because our culture is not, is increasingly unfriendly toward Christians and toward the claims of Christ, right? And so there's this fear that we're going to be, cause, cause you know that you're not narrow-minded right? You know that you're not a bigot. You know that you're not homophobic. But you're afraid of being misunderstood. And you're afraid of being labeled that way because you know it's not true of you. And so this call to incarnational ministry is this call to get over our fears of how people are going to perceive us. To, to care more about what Jesus says about us than what the world says about us and being willing to get out and, and identify with Him and if, if necessary to suffer shame for His name. So many of us, I, I think some of us would rather die at the end of a spear in the dark of the jungle trying to share the gospel in the rainforest than to go to work every day knowing that your coworkers think that you're that guy or that girl. It's more terrifying to be socially marginalized, I think, than to, to be physically persecuted for Christ. How do we get past this fear? How do we, how do we overcome it and get past it? And I think Jesus has given us, uh, at least four, four principles in this, uh, passage to engage in incarnational ministry. Number one, we must embrace the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you do not believe in the resurrection, you have no good news to give anyone. Look in verses 20. Well, he, So Jesus shows up. They're scared. Jesus shows up. He says, shalom. He doesn't just mean peace, brother. He means peace be to you. Be comforted. Let your anxieties be washed away because you know what? You thought I was dead and I am alive. Hallelujah. And so he says, peace be with you. And when he had said this, what did he do? He showed him his hands. He showed him both of his hands with the marks where the nails had gone and he showed them his side where the where the spear had pierced him he says see i'm flesh and blood i'm not not the same kind of flesh and blood that i was but I'm, I'm he's in a physical resurrected body so he shows them as a demonstration and then he says before he gives them a commission he says again shalom so you can have peace because jesus has been raised so that means that your hopes were not in vain that Everything that you believed Jesus to be is true. Everything that he claimed to be about himself was true. Everything that he said he was going to accomplish, he accomplished. He died for the sins of the world. And he rose again and that resurrection was God's stamp of approval on Jesus Christ that he is his Messiah. And he will reign forever. He has a kingdom that has no end If we, we have to embrace this bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I'll be honest with you. This is one of the places where your coworkers might think you're weird. Because we live in a world that is anti-supernatural. I I don't, I I don't, I'm not saying that resurrection happens every day. But I am saying it's happened at least twice or once. One resurrection, one resuscitation. Right? (laughs) Uh, Which Keith is going to preach on next week. Lazarus. So, so there's, there's only been one person who has been resurrected to glorified life. And that's Jesus Christ. So I've got to, if you, if you don't have the guts to look your co-worker in the eye and tell them that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't really have much else to say. That would be helpful to them. So we've got to have the courage to embrace the resurrection. And Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of What importance? First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty. It's meaningless. And your faith also is meaningless. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. There are many churches, uh, especially in the last century, that went in a, what we call a liberal direction. And we don't mean liberal politically, we mean liberal theologically. And it was because they were embarrassed about the resurrection as anti-supernaturalism was gaining ground, as people were thinking more in a a scientific worldview, and the only thing that can be accepted as true is what you can put in a test tube and measure. As as that sort of thinking caught on, the church began to be embarrassed about the resurrection. They began to say, how can we talk about these things? Nobody accepts it. Nobody believes it. And so they started forsaking the, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And they started spiritualizing it and saying, oh, well, it was just a... A spiritual resurrection is kind of like a metaphor. If there was no physical bodily resurrection, Jesus is not king, and he has not been victorious over death. We have our we're hopeless apart from the resurrection of Christ. Number two, we must embody the message of Jesus, and this really gets at the heart of what incarnational ministry is. And this means a couple of things, and I'm, we're going to talk talk about a few things. But for one. In the same way, you think about John 1.14. Do I have that on here? Yeah, I do. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He, he tabernacled among us. But first, let's think. The Word became flesh. When when John uses this title, the Word, to refer to Jesus, he's talking about this is the full expression of who God is. It's it's what God wanted to reveal about Himself To humanity, what God wanted to say about Himself to humanity became flesh. And so, uh, that's why Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And so, the Word uh, became flesh. In the same way that Jesus expressed God's character, as Christians, we are called to express God's character in the world. So we're to, we're to demonstrate it. And so we, so one of the ways that we do that is by taking in the Word of God that tells us about Jesus Christ. Uh, you think about Paul in, in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you take in God's Word, as you read of the life of Christ, as you read uh, the commands of the Apostle Paul, not just reading them to know them up here, but when you internalize it and you allow those things to become part of who you are. So that it gets into your bones and into your sinews and into the fabric of your being. So that, so that when you make choices, when you're confronted with a choice to make, you, you sort of naturally are thinking through this grid and you will, I mean, I can remember just my own experience of growth from a new believer. How, how I was amazed at how I saw myself thinking differently when I was faced with a choice, a scripture that I'd memorized would come to mind. Eugene Peterson describes it this way. He says, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized. That's a good word. So it's like in the same way that your, that your body metabolizes uh, proteins to turn it into muscle. Your body metabolizes it. Metabolizes it. Guess what it turns into? It turns into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name. The name of Peterson's book is "Eat This Book," and he's borrowing from uh, John's meta- uh, John passage in in, in uh, Revelation, where where John the Revelator is told to eat this scroll. And he takes it and eats it. And, and, he, and then after he's eaten it, he, the angel tells him, Now you must prophesy. It's this picture of taking the very words of God and internalizing them. And then they become the outflow of ministry. So again, if you haven't internalized, if you are not consciously trying to internalize the Word of God to, be, to have your character changed by the Word of God, you're not going to have much to offer the world. The wisdom of God is a natural outflow of taking in and metabolizing the wisdom of God in your life. Wisdom of God is a natural outflow of taking in the wisdom of God. So just four quick bullet points. We won't really unpack these, but so we're we're still talking about embodying the message of Jesus Christ. You need proximity, meaning you need to be with people. So if you want to leave a, a tract on the table for your waitress, that's awesome. But what would be even better is looking her in the eye and asking her how you can pray for her. Uh, so be with people. Be not just, be, be physically present and emotionally present with people. You need integrity. You need to be real with people. We live in a culture where, man, people have noses for fakes and they're always on the hunt. Your in, inner life needs to match your outer life and you need to be able to, to be real. Have authenticity and integrity with people. And at third you witness you gotta tell people about Jesus verbally and service. Love people through sacrifice. You know, Jesus in, in Mark ten forty five he referred to his sacrificial death as an act of service. The Son of Man came not not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he his his sacrificial death was service. That seems kind of like an understatement, doesn't it? Your service will result in sacrifice. And it should. So we said we've got to embrace the resurrection. We've got to embody the message. Third, we must be empowered by the Spirit. Verse, uh, so 21, he said, Jesus says, Shalom, peace to you. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I also sent you. That's what we just unpacked. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, people disagree about what's going on in John because there's another place where people receive the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, right? In the book of Acts. And so it, this this passage creates a lot of discussion. They say, well, what's going on here? Is this like a a special little bit of the Spirit and then they're going to get the rest of the Spirit later? Or is this like the Spirit that saves and the Spirit that empowers them is going to be later? Or what's going on? You know what? I don't know. Well, I mean, I have an opinion, but... What really matters, regardless of what view you take, whatever they're receiving of the Spirit here, whether it's just a foreshadowing and what's going on in Acts, regardless of which view you take, the point is that the ministry that Jesus has given us to do cannot be done apart from the Spirit's empowerment. So so regardless of whether they're getting part of the Spirit or all the Spirit, doesn't matter. They need the Spirit to do the work that Jesus has given them to do. And so we've got to be empowered by the spirit and so in acts chapter 4 you actually see this and i and i want you to i want you to think of i do want to help you make a distinction so there's a lot of controversy in the church about baptism of the spirit when does that happen i think i think what would be really more helpful for the church is, is if we think of in terms of being filled with the spirit of god so i i believe that when a person comes to know christ they are baptized in the holy spirit they receive the holy spirit holy spirit seals them Uh, for the day of redemption. But the New Testament, in my, in my view, is very clear that the normal Christian experience is to experience more experiences of the Holy Spirit. And that we, we are to, we are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit in an ongoing, continual way. And sometimes the Holy Spirit encounters us in very dramatic ways. Sometimes the Holy Spirit encounters us in very soft whispers. But, we should be experiencing the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way all the time. The early church experienced this. So in this is Acts chapter 4. And this is after, after the apostles had been arrested, they'd been threatened, and now they've been released. They say, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, this is a good example. I don't think that every time you pray for boldness that your room is going to be shaken. I don't think there's going to be an earthquake every time you pray for boldness. But I do think that every time you seek God for boldness, He will fill you with His Holy Spirit to speak His Word because God wants the Word to be proclaimed. And if you desire to give yourself to Him, to give yourself to that work of proclaiming the gospel, there's no way that he's not going to answer that prayer. Began to speak the Word of God with boldness. also think about Paul's prayers. Think about Ephesians and Colossians where he's he says, pray for me that I can preach the Word with boldness, that I can speak it the way that I ought to speak. Right? The Word needs to get out. And we need the Holy Spirit's power to do it. Because this, as you saw in verse 19... We're not the first generation to experience fear of persecution and fear of, of social ostracism, social marginalization. Every generation has experienced it. And every generation has needed the Holy Spirit of God to empower them for service and witness. And that's just the boldness aspect. You know, we need the Holy Spirit's gifts to be manifested in our lives. We need the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be manifested in our life. And that's what gives, we are talking about that integrity issue, the credibility issue that we have with the world. So we need His empowerment. We need His for life and ministry. Number four, we must exercise the authority of Jesus. All right. Now, don't. Y'all don't walk out. (laughs) Let's read verse 23. So Jesus said, after He tells them that receive the Holy Spirit, He says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Oh, man. So... He made us the Pope. Is that right? No. So, so I can just go around, forgiven, forgiven. Mm, I don't think so. No, no, that is not what he's saying. So he's saying, in the same way that Jesus came, and he had a certain gospel to preach, and that, that gospel was that men have been separated from God because of their own sin. And the invitation is now for men to return to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when a person repents of sin and they turn to Christ in faith, their sins are forgiven. God receives them back and He forgives them of their sin. And so Jesus is authorizing us in the same way that Jesus had authority to walk the earth. And as people turn to God in faith, Jesus informed them that their sins were forgiven. We have the same authority. We have the same... You might even say we have the same duty. Because as people turn to God in faith, it is our great... Privilege to tell them that their sins are forgiven. And on the other hand, people who reject the gospel, it's our sad duty to inform them that the wrath of God still abides on them. The way John 3.36 does says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so what this means for incarnational ministry is that we don't invite people to God on their terms. We don't invite people to God on our terms, right? We invite people to God on God's terms. And when people come to God on his terms, we declare to them that God has forgiven them. And that's the authority that Jesus has given the church to walk in. Does that make sense? So we're not people are not forgiven because I say so, but I I I proclaim what God has said is true about them when they turn to him in faith. And, 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 but God knows your heart. So some people can fool me, right? They might come and, and, and pretend repentance, pretend faith. They may even be deceived themselves about their, the genuineness of their faith. And so I might think, Hey, man, yeah, your sins are forgiven. You're turning to God. You're following Him. Paul says in one of his letters to Timothy, he says, The Lord knows those who are His. So I just want to say that just for any of us who might be self-deceived or deceiving others, God knows your heart, and and you might be slick, you might be a fast talker, you might get by at church, but when you stand before God at the last day, you won't be able to, you won't have a line slick enough to get by Him. So we've got to embrace the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We've got to embody the message of Jesus. We've got to be empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. And we've got to exercise the authority of Jesus. Application to be Jesus in the world. We need to confess and forsake fear. You cannot tame the beast until you name the beast. I think there are are a lot of Christians who are calling their fear something else. And, And I'm, if you've ever talked to me about missions, you know that I am, I believe we need to be culturally sensitive. I think we need to be culturally relevant. I think we need to be gentle in our approach but can i tell you that there are some people who are they're, they're hiding in fear from the world and they're calling it cultural relevance and they're calling it cultural sensitivity and they're calling it respect they're putting other labels on it but the reality is that they they're just scared they're scared of of publicly identifying themselves going into the workplace and risking being kicked to the sidelines because they took a stand for Jesus and so we've got to confess that that kind of fear is a sin, it's and it's a it's it's a sin. Jesus said, I'm just going to say what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me, and my words in this generation, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father and His heavenly angels. And so so it is part uh, uh, an essential part of our discipleship in following Christ that we've got to confess it before men. And so we need to confess and forsake fear. And we need to go to God for His grace. I'm, I'm not trying to condemn anybody or make anybody feel guilty. Only God can give you power over fear. Only God can break the fear of man in your life. And so we've got to go to Him and seek His grace. Confess it and forsake it. And He will forgive it and He will empower you. Uh, number two, make time to be with unbelievers. Man, this is my big sin especially a year ago I started working for a non-profit ministry so now I work with Christians go to church with Christians and it's very very difficult for me to to the, the waitress is the only unbeliever I ever see pretty it seems like so so we've got to make intentional time to be with unbelievers and this doesn't mean that you have to exhaust yourself by by being busy in 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 events and activities all the time but I think uh man what Andrew was describing that's right on man that's incarnational ministry invite your a neighbor over to your house and look for an opportunity to share the gospel and so and so making time to be with unbelievers uh, it can be doing things that you're already doing but finding a way to invite other people into that you know Terry and I we we've i think we're going to have to learn Spanish in order to in, invite uh people over for burgers uh get my google translate out i don't know i don't know but 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 I do, I feel, I feel conviction about it, like I gotta figure out a way to, to, to make it happen. And third, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that quite a lot, so you can't do this without, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the command of the Bible is to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know that you don't have to jump through a bunch of spiritual hoops to convince God to fill you with the Spirit? Right. You, if you're spiritually dry, You can turn to God, open yourself up to Him, and in that moment, you can be filled with His Holy Spirit. So you don't have to, you don't have to, it's not like uh, Catholicism, you have to go through penance and say your Hail Marys and and convince God that you're really sincere, and then He's going to. But being filled with the Spirit is being yielded to God and being willing to, to walk by the Spirit and what He commands. Number four, in word and action. Jesus Came into the world, and he had a message to tell, and he had a life that he demonstrated, and then his ultimate act of service was at the cross that we talked about. So the worship team's going to sing a song that is uh, special to me. I think it uh, captures this message very well. I just want to invite you as we enter into this time of ministry. If you're if you're in the bondage of fear. This is a great time for you just to, to confess that. If you want prayer, just raise your hand. We'd love to come pray for you, for God to, to break off a yoke of fear from you. Um, and any of these other responses that you need to make, if you've got some sin in your life that needs to be forsaken in order for you, you feel like, I'm dry, I'm not walking with the Lord the way I should, I want to be filled with His Holy Spirit, this is a moment when you can forsake that sin and you can open yourself up to Him and be filled with His Spirit.